Okay, we want to get started here. And this class is about how to start a church garden, how to make it an outreach. Um, how many of you have church gardens now? Any of you have church gardens now? Nobody? Okay. Um, do you have a place for a church garden? You do? All right. Everybody has a place? Okay. You have a place? All right. Um, <clears throat> We, uh, we don't have a projector, so we're going to go ahead and do other things here. Um, we have so many promises in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy uh, to teach us, to give us wisdom, um, to direct us for the Holy Spirit to come. And uh, so um, we've got traffic coming in now, so I want want them to go through and then we'll stop and have a prayer here. All right. So tell me tell me what part of the country you live in. Prospect, Tennessee. Tennessee? Missouri. Missouri. Where? Australia. Australia. You came a long ways. Yeah. Pardon me? Michigan. Michigan. Okay. And you? Texas. Texas. Okay. Florida. Florida. Florida, and, and I didn't hear you. I still didn't hear. North Carolina. North Carolina, okay, good. Vermont. Vermont. Tennessee. Tennessee. All right. Um, all right, let's, let's ask God to direct us, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for so many promises that you give to us to teach us, to lead us, to send the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we need that. We need to be taught. And so we're open to that and ask for that to do your will and your work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, one of the things uh, that we do in the church garden is we make friends with the neighbors. Uh, we're reaching out to them. And um, um, what I find is that People want to do business. They want to come to church with friends. And so when we have new people come into the church, um, in some surveys they've done, they indicate that they need about seven different contacts within that church, seven different friends within that church that they feel comfortable with. Uh, otherwise, we very often lose them. They feel like, well, that's not a friendly church, and so we lose them there. At my church, we had some people come in, join the garden class. They were very interested, and uh, I, you know, I love these people. They were they were great, and there were so there were a few people that uh, made friends and, with this uh, couple. Um, and you know what? I travel a lot. My wife got very sick during that time and died. And it wasn't six months later that I had a, my youngest daughter was in an accident and was killed. And so just, I, I wasn't there a lot for these people. We lost them to the church. They left. They didn't feel like we were friendly enough. So we want to make friends with these people. Um, that'll do more good than a lot of other things we can do here. I like to get children involved. Kids have a great time in the garden. And... Uh, 
so as long as you know you've got a parent or a grandparent there, this is not a babysitting service, uh, but but get the kids involved and they will love it. There. Okay, if you will use principles, <clears throat> if you will use principles from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and from carefully observing nature. Uh, those are three sources of divine wisdom. And uh, so when we use those, uh, you, you, will have, you will have superior information. You will have uh, a better garden and a better class um, uh, there. <clears throat> Let's just take, uh, for instance, Ellen White's tree planting method. Uh, four o'clock out here, we're going to plant a tree. And uh, I have seen trees, um, well, people tell me all the time about trees that they have planted using this method that are just are so superior, just do such a, a, a good job. Uh, in Camino, California, close to where I live, a man came in and showed me an orchard, a pear orchard, that his uncle had planted 60 years ago. And I'll tell you, trees that are two years old, planted the Ellen White method, are bigger and far more productive than those 60-year-old pear trees. Yes, we have that happen again and again and again. <clears throat> um, there's a lady that came to my uh, garden class in um, Placerville, California, and so she went home and started planting trees, the Ellen White method. Um, right across the fence, her neighbor had an orchard of about 10-year-old trees. And the neighbor came over, neighbor lady came over and looked and she said, what on earth are you doing with that? She said, oh, this is a special way of planting trees that I learned in my garden class. The lady said, shoot, forget that, you know, that's way too much work there. Well, a year later when these trees planted the Ellen White method were approaching the 10-year-old tree size. That neighbor came back and <clears throat> looked over that fence and now she wanted to know, what on earth are you doing? You know? mm. So often we have to demonstrate the superiority of these principles that come from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And in this church, we have answers. We have tremendous answers in this church. Uh, answers for the, that the whole world needs. And they're given to us not to hang on to just for us to make us happy. They're given to us so that we'll share them with the whole world. Uh, another thing that, we, that is fun to do in the, in the garden is to use the ocean water or ocean water minerals. Now, they're very inexpensive to use. Very inexpensive to use. And you'll get tremendous results by using some ocean water. A good thing to do is to do some experimenting in the garden. So plant, let's say, two rows the same time with the same seeds, the same plants, and use the ocean water on one and not on the other. Okay, mark it so that everybody knows that this is the ocean water row, this is one without ocean water. Do everything the same, but mark it. And then when that produce is, is ready to eat, you will find a huge difference in flavor. You'll see a difference in the strength of the plants. <clears throat> You'll see a, a difference in the, the plant's um, immune system being much stronger and healthier. You will not see 
a big increase in pounds per foot or pounds per acre there, okay? But what you will see is far superior food there. So it's another thing to demonstrate. Are we ready to go? Okay, go to the garden, uh, yeah, garden workshop. Yeah, let's try that one. We'll just look at a few pictures there. And then, well, let's, let's look at a few pictures here. Can you make that any bigger? Okay, I went to Brazil um, in the tropics there, and, uh, and we planted that hillside with about 450 fruit trees. Um, now, a year and a half later, I went back, and that little tree that I planted was a little twig when we put it in the ground. Yes, let's look at some more pictures. Okay, here's, um, that's a cashew tree. Uh, so, a year and a half later, we come back, and what we put in the ground is a little twig now. You can see the size of that. Now, that's a cashew plant. Let's go to the, that cashew fruit there. Okay, there it is. Okay, that's the cashew nut here, and then this is the fruit here. Uh, any of you eat cashew fruit? Yes. Okay. Do you like it? Do you like it? Okay. Well, um, since I planted those trees, and a buddy of mine went back with me, so, and a year and a half later, here there's ripe fruit on these trees. So we picked some of it and uh, tried to eat it. Boy, was it nasty. <laughs> but we took it up to the kitchen, and they put a lot of sugar with it. And I guess if you put enough sugar with anything, you can make it taste good there. But they loved it. Local people loved it there. Okay, let's look at, um, let's look at a few more pictures here. Okay, these are guavas. These were little pencil-sized sticks we put in the ground there. And a year and a half later, we have trees about this big, covered with white guava blossoms, little tiny green guavas, big green guavas, and ripe guavas, all in a year and a half there. Next picture. Another guava tree. Let's go on. Okay, that is a uh, um, avocado tree. It had not produced avocados yet, but you can see the size of it. What next one? Now let's go to the end to to the uh, Ellen White planting method uh, there and see what we've got. Oh, this is the ocean water. Okay, this is. Let, let's go here. Okay, these tree, two trees are three years old. Again, little pencil-sized trees that we put in the ground. I made sure that this tree was not the biggest because I knew what was going to happen. This tree was planted the Ellen White method. This one is planted the forestry method. There. This is in three years. Tremendous difference. There's a bit of divine wisdom here. When, when, you, um, when I demonstrate this in the garden, now in, in my garden class I should tell you that um, usually the mix is about one-third of the people are not church members there, and probably about two-thirds. This is an average. It doesn't always work out that way there. So, um, so as I demonstrate this, and, and I will plant, um, we'll plant a plant that way in the garden, and then we can go over and look at these trees there, and I say something like, there's obviously some divine wisdom here in this. And you know what? It's the non-church members who are shaking their heads saying, wow, that's true, you know? And often it's the church members who are saying, what? So anyway, um, by demonstrating this, you can show that uh, there's, there are superior, uh, better solutions. And 
and people will, will take that up and use them. Okay, next uh, picture. Okay, um, I want to tell you that um, in a tomato farm, just out in the field, that the average plant is going to put out six pounds of tomatoes and then that plant is going to die there. Uh, now, planting, planting this way, the Ellen White method a tomato plant, I picked just over 100 pounds of tomatoes off of one plant. And uh, <clears throat> um, I'll have to tell you that um, when I planted that plant, I put a big cage around it because I knew it was going to grow big there. This was an early girl tomato plant, not known for, for being the biggest producer there. Uh, so anyway, I put this big cage around it, and a few weeks into it, I realized that that was a mistake, that that was too small. And so I tore that cage down, and we made it into a long fence, a trellis, for that tomato plant. In the process, we broke some branches, but the plant was all right. Now, when the first frost came, I knew we were very close to 100 pounds. We weren't there yet. And so when the... When the um, first frost came, um, we weren't quite to 100 pounds. So what I did is I picked all the green tomatoes and I weighed them, and so we got, <laughs> we got 100 pounds. But we were like um, six pounds short, I think, there. So the next spring, we started, <clears throat> started the garden again, and my wife said to the people in the class, she said, well, now last year we did 100 pounds of tomatoes, so who wants to go for 125 pounds? Of course, everybody says, yeah, let's do that. And I'm thinking, oh, no, you know. <laughs> there. So we planted a, a, a plant. We got it going. Um, it was doing very well. Now, what we do, we come to the garden class, and we pick everything in each row, uh, and we measure it, we weigh it, we record it, and then we send it home with people there. <clears throat> um, so... Um, uh, this plant was doing very, very well, and uh, one night I came to the class, I came to the garden late, it wasn't a class there. We had a sign on that tomato plant, please don't pick, you know, we're, um, we're, we're weighing everything, we're measuring this. And uh, anyway, I came to the garden class, and it was dark already, and here's this guy with a flashlight strapped to his head, and he's there picking away on these tomatoes. And I said, hey, wait a minute, you know. And he said, oh, he said, I didn't know that. These are the best tomatoes in the whole garden, and I've been picking them regularly. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that plant produced, but it did, uh, it did very well, and you can do, do very well with uh, what you have there. Okay, let's see what else we have there. Um, okay, we're not... The tree method works with tomatoes. The tree method works very well with tomatoes. It will work with any, any um, plant that you want to grow to unusual size, record size, and production there. <clears throat> um, incidentally, those, the, the early girl tomatoes, usually about this big, and those tomatoes were larger and they were very delicious. Um, we use we use some ocean water on them, which is a big, big help. Um, uh, so, what's that? Was there pruning involved? 
Was there pruning involved? Good question. Uh, in California, where I live, that part of California, if I do too much pruning, we're going to get sunburn on the tomatoes. So I do less pruning than uh, if you study tomatoes and you know the people that tell you how to grow tomatoes, they'll tell you how to prune them there. And that's good, but that's mostly for greenhouse or very um, tight growing. They may grow tomatoes uh, a foot apart, yes, and they're growing them up and they're pruning it off. Yes, now um, that's a lot of extra work, but I let those tomatoes bush out there. Now you do have to keep the tomatoes off the ground. If you don't, if you just let them sprawl on the ground, you're going to lose most of them because insects and, and uh, rot will take them. So you do have to keep them off the ground there. All right, where are we here? Okay, this is. Water. What is the proportion of yes, for ocean water? No, if we put a good question, what, we, what is the proportion of ocean water uh, to fresh water? If you've gone to the ocean and you've got uh, a bucket of ocean water, use one measure of ocean water to ten fresh water. Okay, one to ten. There. Now, um, unless you live close to the ocean. Uh, for most of us, that's going to be an expensive trip. So ocean water is very inexpensive to use if we use it where the ocean has been dehydrated. Okay, So we want, the, we want to get the salt from a clean part of the ocean. You want that, you want that salt to be uh, nothing added and nothing taken out. Um, you can go to the grocery store and get pure sea salt. It's pure white. It has been purified. And they have taken out those minerals that we want because they get a big price for them in industry. And they've left us with the sodium chloride and then to that they add aluminum so that, that it will pour through your salt shaker. There. Don't get that. That's pure poison. Okay? Um, so get the ocean water salts with nothing added and nothing taken out. There, um, you may have to go to the health food store to do that. Um, if, you, if you go to my website, you can get, um, this is how inexpensive this stuff is to use. Uh, for the average family, let's say four or five people, uh, for the average family garden, you need less than $15 worth of that for a whole season. You won't use that much for a whole season. So it's very inexpensive to use, and it gets such tremendous results um, there. So I would encourage you to try to, 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 to use that and experiment with it there. Um, we're talking about ocean water, so I want to give a, a, um, an illustration. Less than a year ago, about 11 months ago, I planted 12 fruit trees at my house. Uh, when those fruit trees started to bud out, one of them was very sick. It was a little um, nectarine tree. Now, peaches and nectarines and some other trees get what we call this peach leaf curl. Everybody know what peach leaf curl is? Okay, good. All right, it's an uncontrolled growth of cells in that leaf. Um, now, 
in humans and in animals, an uncontrolled growth of cells, we call that cancer. Okay? We don't call this peach leaf cancer, we call it peach leaf curl. Nevertheless, it's an uncontrolled growth of cells there. It's a disease. If we don't control that, that tree is going to die. Is that one that leads to kind of red and bumpy and stuff? Yes. Gets red and bumpy, yes. Now, uh, so I, I, I planted these trees, and this little nectarine tree had, um, it was just covered with this peach leaf curl. So I took the ocean water salts, I mixed it up double. Now, if, you, if you're going to use the ocean water itself, I told you to take 10 parts of fresh water to one of ocean water. When you have a sick plant, I double that, or I, I take two parts of the ocean water, or one to five, let's say, one to five. So I'm doubling that up. Now, what's the worst that can happen? I might kill that plant, right? I might kill that plant. That plant's going to die anyway, though, unless it gets treated here. So I treated this tree. Now, just a little tree, and even when it budded out, it was only about four, four feet tall or so. So I mixed up this mixture, uh, <clears throat> and in this case, with the salt itself, the mixture is one ounce, just use your kitchen measuring spoon, one ounce to two and a half gallons of water. Okay, so... C90? C90, C90. Yes, if you have C90, use um, an ounce to two and a half gallons of water. Now, this tree was sick, so I took two ounces to two and a half gallons of water. There. Mix it up, put it in a watering can, and I just watered it all over that tree. Okay. I want the leaves to get it. I want lots of that water to go into the ground around that, that tree. I did it twice, a week apart there. In about another week, uh, all of those sick leaves uh, turned black and died and fell off the tree there. Uh, you're not going to heal those, those sick uh, leaves. They're just going to die. The, all the new leaves that came on and the leaves that weren't infected just turned a beautiful uh, color, beautiful green, and were very, very healthy, extremely healthy <clears throat> there. Now, um, when those nectarines started to ripen, um, I went out there, I get impatient, and so I tried to taste them a little early. But I went out there and started to taste them, and I could tell that the flavor was incredibly good on those nectarine trees. At a camp meeting ago, too, what's the name of that place? Chilliquin. Um, Chilliquin. Chilliquin, yeah. Oregon. Oregon, yes. I had a camp meeting to go to. Uh, met Andrew there. And uh, so I, <clears throat> I took some of these not ripe. Um, uh, nectarines because I wanted uh, wanted to you know to t tell the people about it. When I got there, uh, cut them up, put them on plates, and passed them out to people. To a person, everybody who tasted those said, "Wow, those are the best nectarines I've ever eaten. Best nectarine I've ever eaten." And they weren't even ripe yet. So anyway, it's a fun thing to play with there. Okay, where are we here? Okay, let's go on from here. I like to get kids involved. Uh, let's go on. Um, well, let's look at that formula. Oh, well, no. Hey, let's go here. Here you go. All right. 
There's the Ellen White tree planting, three and a half years. We've got some of our pathfinders there. Just incredible growth that you get with that. Okay, next picture. Okay. Um, go, go back one. Okay, this tree and the other one were planted at the same time. We've had a drought for several years in California, and that tree did not make it. That tree died in, in, the, uh, in the drought. Uh, if you were to drive through Northern California and the mountains right now even, you'll find big patches of trees that are dead, forests that are dead because of that drought uh, there. But when trees are planted this way, um, you, you, have, you don't have that problem. They're just much, much uh, healthier there. Okay, what else do we have here? Yeah, you can see the tremendous difference there. Okay, here we are at five years, six years old. All right. Yeah, look at the difference here. Now, if, uh, uh, if I were to go there today, you, if you come to Placerville, California, you can go to the Placerville Church, walk in the backyard, and you can see those trees yourself. If I were to go there today, and I were to cut the Ellen White tree uh, and weigh it, and I were to take the largest of the others that we planted at the same time, the regular way, and, and weigh them, uh, weigh that, uh, we would have a difference of at least 1 to 20 in volume, at least that in weight. Now, it doesn't mean that that's 20 times taller, but the, you know, the total mass of that tree uh, is there. Okay. Uh, yes, this is part of the Ellen White tree planting method, and we'll do this this afternoon. Uh, I want to, um, that's good, let's go to uh, another page. Okay, stop right there. Okay, uh, one thing I like to do in the garden uh, is, to, is to teach tithing, because we're going to deal with people who, we're going to have people in that garden who don't tithe, don't understand tithing. Now, uh, in this garden, because because we are not paying for water, we're not paying any rent on the land, not paying for the little bit of electricity we use, um, you know, the church just allows us to use that land. So instead of taking 10%, we take 20% of the produce. And, and uh, we put it out on a table like that. And when I first did this, we had people would, that would come by and they would fill their baskets and whatever with the best produce and then leave the rest and that was tithe. And I said, hey, wait a minute. We don't give the worst to God. We give him the best. We, so we took now 20% of the best produce and that went, the first year, we went, it, it went to community services. And the next day, they would give all that stuff away, you know, that we could send them. Now, often... Often, instead of 20% that was, came out of the garden, often it was 50, 60% of everything went to community services there. So, and, and then, you know, because people, people had all that they could use, take home there. So then we changed the system of tithing uh, because as people come through that line and they're just picking up produce, they don't know where it came from there, they're community people. <clears throat> so we changed it to this method of tithing. 
And that is, uh, if you know, I asked the people in the class, if you know of somebody who is needy in your community, I want you to take produce to them. Take the tithe, take the best, and take it to them. If you know somebody in your community who's sick, we have lots of sick people all around us there. If you have somebody who has cancer or some other disease there, um, take this produce to them. Say, look, I help grow this. I know that it's better than the very best organic food that you could buy in the grocery store. It also tastes better there. It's more healing, and I want you to have it. Um, um, that contact uh, is far more meaningful to the people because you have come and given it uh, to them personally. Um, another thing that we can do is to give the Daniel challenge. Daniel and his buddies in 10 days look much better. And if people will eat this way for 10 days, they'll cut out the, the poisons, the toxins that are causing them to get sick. And they'll eat this way for just 10 days. They'll feel better. Um, they'll notice the difference themselves. They'll think better. They'll be clearer. So that's another thing that we, can, uh, that we do uh, there. <clears throat> uh, you, you'll be making better friends and more friends and people realize that you have their best interest at heart uh, from this. <clears throat> There's, uh, there's another thing that we'll be talking about tomorrow, and that is using charcoal in the garden. Biochar is what it's called. And if you use it correctly, you will get, um, used correctly, uh, properly charged, properly inoculated, it will get you better results than anything else you can do in the garden, than any other one thing you can do in the garden. Uh, now, last year, at this time, or at the, the ag conference, I was supposed to be teaching about biochar. Unfortunately, I was at my daughter's funeral instead. Uh, but because I was going to teach about this, I got a 70-pound bag of biochar, and I took a row and I put it into the garden just the way that, um, that the manufacturers suggested we put it in. There, <clears throat> follow these directions there. Now, if you had walked through my garden last year, you would have said, what's the matter with that row? And that would have been the biochar row there. So incorrectly used, you can do a lot of damage uh, there. So, um, uh, but this is another thing that we could, that you could demonstrate, that you could do an experiment on in the garden there. Now, we're gonna make mistakes in the garden. And especially we have children there, you know, they get excited and sometimes step on the plant they just planted or do something else. But uh, mistakes are going to be made. That's okay. That's okay. We learn more from our mistakes than we do when we do things right. So, and, and so it's a good learning experience. But uh, also we'll find that truth is not very far away um, often is not very far away from what, from the mistake, from what we were doing there. Okay. I thought this would be a good one. Then. Oh, yes, this is a good one. All right. Um, this is an interesting chart. Uh, here we are. Hard to read. This is um, 
Well, this is about 100 years uh, of agriculture. And you can see that as we uh, get into modern agriculture here, this is mechanized farming, which has started right after the uh, Second World War, or First World War, really. Uh, then we get into the ammonia nitrogens, which really made um, produce the, the amount of you know, tons per acre go way up. And then here in this pink area, we're into pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. Over here, we're into glyphosate, which is Roundup um, and uh, genetically modified foods. I want you to, I want you to notice that as we get into glyphosate here, the more of that we use, look at the disease rates that go up. These are the diseases going up. Our disease is just skyrocketing there. Uh, please, whatever you do, do not use Roundup in your garden and on your land. Um, it is a poison that um, anything that it touches, it weakens and eventually kills doesn't do it immediately. Uh, well, it depends on the, the amount we put on there. But uh, Roundup is used in a lot of products, a lot of um, plants <clears throat> that are not genetically modified. Uh, <clears throat> today, <clears throat> today, we have lots of people who say they are gluten intolerant there. All kinds of problems uh, there. Um, um, what we're finding is that they are not gluten intolerant. They are Roundup intolerant there. Now, how do we know that? Uh, because these same people who are gluten intolerant, I'll just tell a story of an individual which will illustrate it. A lady was extremely gluten intolerant here. She took a trip to Italy. Uh, took a vacation there. And every day that she would walk past this little bakery, she'd see um, bake I, uh, goods that she just, you know, would love to, to eat. One day she thought, well, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to try something. So she went in and she ate some small thing made with wheat. Uh, <clears throat> now, wheat is not genetically modified. So she went in and she ate something that was made with wheat, something had gluten in it, and she didn't get sick. And so the next day, she, she, used, she got more of it. And again, she didn't get sick. She expected to get deathly sick. That would happen in the United States. She would take anything with gluten in it, any wheat product, and she would get so sick she should end up in the hospital uh, there. Well, she didn't get sick, so she decided, well, I must have overcome. I'm not gluten intolerant anymore. I'm well. She came back to the United States uh, and thinking that she, that her body had healed now and got something with gluten in it and immediately ended in the hospital, almost killed her there. Now, she wasn't gluten intolerant. She was Roundup intolerant there. Uh, now, why do, they, why do we spread, why do we spray wheat fields with Roundup. The United States and Canada, we do that because as the wheat ripens, <clears throat> if we cut it too early, it's gonna mold and we're gonna lose that wheat crop. 
If we cut it too late, it's going to, many of those grains are going to fall on the ground, and of course the farmer's lost it. So he'll come in and spray that whole field, and that whole field now is going to ripen at the same time. Obviously he's got tons more of wheat that he can sell. So it's a dollar and cents thing. He's making a lot more money uh, at it. In the, at, the, at the same time, we're causing all kinds of, of um, health problems uh, for, for our people. In Europe, uh, it's illegal. You cannot use glyphosate. So that's the difference there. Okay, I've been talking for a while. Any questions? Yes. If it's organic, is it glyphosate-free? Um, it is supposed to be. It may not be. <laughs> it is supposed to be. Yes. 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 When you were talking about the charcoal, when you follow, when you follow the manufacturer's directions, that's when the plants got sick died? Yes. Um, good question. When I followed the manufacturer's directions, the manufacturer's directions were to take this charcoal, spread it one inch thick on top of the ground, and then dig it in 10 inches. With, when you're using charcoal in the garden, you only want one part to 10 um, by volume of the charcoal. Okay, one part to 10 there. So that's what I did. I dug it in 10 inches. Now this row had been double dug, as, my, as the rest of my garden is. And <clears throat> Uh, so I dug this in, uh, ready to plant, so I dug it in to that 10 inches there. Then I planted tomatoes and squash and a bunch of different things there, beans <clears throat> there. You said the manufacturer's directions was one inch? Put one inch on the top and dig it in 10 inches. And, and the way you did it is, the, the good way is what? what well, that's mean? the way I did it. I followed, his, followed the manufacturer's directions. One inch to dig it in 10 inches deep. So what now, is the best okay, let me give you the best way. All right, now this, this soil had been dug this deep, okay, but I only did it 10 inches deep there. All right, so the plants were struggling. Uh, this is a good thing to do. If you, if you have a problem in the garden, go over and sacrifice a few plants and dig down and see what's happening. You often... Uh, learn something that's valuable there. So I, I dug down into that ground. Here's what was happening. Um, the, the water, the moisture, had been kept in that 10 inches. Okay? When I got below that, there was very little moisture in that soil. It was so dry that the roots would not go down into it there. Now... <clears throat> Uh, when, we, when we plant, uh, if we're double digging, or if we're using the Ellen White planting method, we're going quite deep. Ellen White says to dig deeply and to dig often. Uh, so um, dig deeply, plow deeply, whatever you're going to do, um, and mix that in as deep as you can. Uh, we're going to plant a tree out here. We don't have any biochar for it, but... Um, uh, but we would mix that all the way uh, up and down that, that whole uh, area of, of soil there. Otherwise, we're holding the water where we don't, don't want it. 
would we use charcoal for places where oil spills? Uh, charcoal is a tremendous absorber uh, of, of, um, of toxins. And so that would be a good thing. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes if we have an imbalance in a garden, the charcoal would be very good. Also, if you have an imbalance, um, you got too much of one thing, not enough of something else. Um, if, if you use the charcoal, but you use uh, life in the soil, the more you can make that soil alive. See, we want the microbes and the fungi plants, the mushroom-type plants, to multiply in that soil. And when we do that, it has a tendency to uh, buffer itself, to heal itself. All of nature, nature wants to heal itself. So if we give it the right materials, nature will go towards healing itself. Whether it's a human body or a plant, um, it works the same way there. Good question, thank you. All right, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. The bamboo plant. What's that? The bamboo plant. Oh, do you use the bamboo plant for biochar? Let me see if I understand the question. You're saying you want to use bamboo for biochar? Uh, the other day I went to a um, ministry uh, over by Tampa and they were showing us how to use bamboo uh, for biochar. And yes, that, that's a good, uh, a good thing to, to use there. Pardon me? Using bamboo for what? They were making charcoal out of it. They are making charcoal out of it and then incorporating that into the soil there, yes. Now, uh, how do we make charcoal? We get a real hot fire going and then we smother it. You could do it with water, you could do it with sand. Um, you just have to exclude oxygen and that's, that's going to make the, the charcoal. Now, what you want uh, is the black stuff. You don't, you don't want the ash. Okay, so the ash is going to turn uh, kind of a gray-white color. And uh, unless your soil test says that you need uh, a lot of potassium, then avoid the ash and just use the charcoal. Uh, you see here, let's look at another principle here. When we make, um, let's take a tree and let's grind it up and make compost out of it. In two or three years, <clears throat> In two or three years' time, all of that compost is going to be gone. It's going to go back into carbon dioxide, water, oxygen, uh, hydrogen. It's just going to be gone there. If we take that same tree and we make it into charcoal, we've changed it structurally. And um, if we were around a thousand years later, that is still charcoal. So it has some very interesting things. Are we out of time? No? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, have you ever used volcanic ash? Have we ever used volcanic ash? Absolutely. We use it all the time. Volcanic soils are very, um, are usually uh, very rich. <clears throat> um, but there are different volcanoes and there are different ashes there. Another question that I get often is what about? Um, rock dusts, you know, I hear about rock dusts. Well, rock dusts are very good, but there are all kinds of different rock dusts. You see, there's lime, 
which is a calcium. There's gypsum, which is a calcium but uh, doesn't change the pH. There is uh, soft rock phosphate, um, phosphate bones and shells, ground up. Uh, so it depends on your soil test because if you already have too much phosphate, you may not want to put you know, that particular rock dust down. But yes, we use those um, uh, often there. Yes? Does that affect anything in, on your um, soil test? Yes. Did you not use it if you have a certain soil test? Yes, okay. Um, the sea minerals, the sea salt. Um, now, if you, if you are in a dry part of the country, you have to be very careful of this, or if you're growing in a greenhouse. Uh, if you're growing where you have adequate rainfall, that means maybe 20 inches or more a year in rainfall, the sea salt, sodium chloride, and the boron. Those are the two things that would cause a toxicity in the soil there. <clears throat> so, uh, if we are, <clears throat> let's talk about, um, well, uh, the San Joaquin Valley in uh, California there. Uh, I have to be very careful there in getting the soil test to know just what's in that soil, because if I get too much salt, it's toxic. Um, let me, let me use another illustration here. Uh, we need that salt in the ground, all right? We need, uh, plants need sodium there. Um, let's use the human body here. We have lots of salt in our bodies. Uh, if I cut my finger, the blood is salty. If I get a tear or a drop of sweat into my mouth, it's very salty. There, we have lots of salt in our body. We would die quickly without that salt. We've got to have it there. But if I take just five little teaspoons of salt at one time, that's a lethal dose. Yeah. So what is necessary for health, out of balance, will kill me. Same thing is true with our plants there. Now, in the San Joaquin Valley, we've got another problem, and that is that some of the wells are salty there. Now, we have lots of, of uh, mountains there, and so the water comes from the mountains or from the ground. The last few years of um, drought out there, we've had to take more water from the ground, which is saltier, and less from the mountains, which is not salty. Um, now we've had lots of water in the last few weeks, and so we'll be able to, to do that. So uh, we'll be able to to use more salt. I would say experiment with it, see whether it's working for you. If you get too much salt, well, what would happen if you got too much salt into your garden? Uh, you would have uh, plants sitting in wet soil and they're wilting. Now what's happening is that the salt is drawing the water out. So, um, so here you have a plant sitting in wet soil and is dying of thirst. So uh, so you have a, a, a plant that's dry, dying of thirst and yet it's sitting in water. What happens, what would you do if that happened? Well, you just water that like crazy. You leach that extra salt out and you'll be okay with that. Thank you, you guys have been a good class. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.